0: Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we were too foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us generously through Jesus Christ. Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and are full of self-condemnation. I'm just going to read a, um, a short piece from uh, 2 Peter uh, 1, verses 1 to 4. Uh, it should be on the screen. Um, And it says, um, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promise. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires.
1: Now, if I asked you this before um, six o'clock this evening, um, I wonder what you would say. If I was to ask you what single word you would use to summarize the Bible's message... What would you say? Now, you probably know the answer, uh, because Andy's mentioned it a few times. Um, But I imagine a lot of you would have already said grace. 500 years ago, as the Reformation swept through much of Europe, what was the call of the Reformers? It was this, the five solas. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Right at the start of the call, that word grace is mentioned. And throughout the Reformation, many men and women, faithful men and women, were willing to die on these doctrines. So why was grace so important to the Reformers? Throughout history, uh, Christians have had to swim against the tide of, popular, of the popular worldview of whatever time they live in. And 500 years ago, uh, in Europe at least, the popular worldview was that of Catholicism. Uh, the, Catholic taught, taught, the Catholic Church taught that you are saved by grace, but added you need a lot of merit as well. And the Reformers had to say no to that teaching. It is grace alone. We cannot add to our salvation. Tonight, you may need to hear the same message. It is only by grace that you can be saved. Nothing else. Maybe that's you tonight. You need to hear that afresh. But today, especially in uh, Leamington Spa, possibly the more common view is that there is no need for grace at all. If there is a God, you might say, then he has made me as I am, and sin isn't serious at all. You know, it's part of my identity. That's the popular thing to say, isn't it? And God cannot be angry at that, surely. In many ways, the thinking is very much the same. You sit there thinking, I'm okay. Because I don't do too much that uh, doesn't fit with my character I'm, I'm true to myself, but the message is the same to you, if that's how you think. Grace alone can save. And there'll be others of you who fully believe that salvation is by grace alone, uh, but like to leave it there. You might say, well, it doesn't matter what I do now, because grace will cover my sin. I can live how I like and ask for forgiveness afterwards. And wonderfully, the Bible's message is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But we still must say no to that way of thinking too. Grace doesn't end at forgiveness. Andy's already mentioned that, hasn't he? It doesn't end at salvation. It's for life. And we'll see that as we go through our passage tonight. Let me give you a bit of context to the verses we're going to look at. We're going to look at particularly verses 3 to 8 of Titus chapter 3. Uh, And and broadly, Titus, the book of Titus, is written by Paul to Titus, who was the pastor of the church in Crete. You can uh, see that in chapter 1, verse 5. And Paul is addressing a number of issues um, with church leadership, um, what sound doctrine is, Uh, and now he moves on to what Titus should tell his congregation about how they should relate to outsiders and with each other. And our passage, verses 3 to 8, is sandwiched between verses 1 and 2, which tell us to live peaceably, and then verses 9 to 11, which tell us to live uh, to not be decisive, divisive. And in the middle of all of that, we have six verses reminding us of God's great grace. But why is it there in the letter? Why isn't it right at the start? Why is it in the middle of Though, verses 1 and 2, to live peaceably, and 9 to 10, to not be divisive. Well, it's because grace does not end at forgiveness, but it affects every area of life. So what we're going to do is we're going to, um, first of all, see what grace is, and then see three, way, three things it offers us. So what grace is, and then three things that grace offers. So first of all, uh, verses 3 and 4, what is grace? Firstly... Grace is for sinners, verse 3. Paul starts his great piece on grace by reminding Titus what he and Titus and all of the church in Crete were like. They were all full of sin, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. There isn't a positive word in that list, is there? They're all negative. And remember what Paul has just said. He's just said that we should be peaceable. Verses 1 and 2, we need to be peaceable. And compare the list of qualities in verses 1 and 2 to the qualities of verse 3, and they couldn't be much more opposite, could they? You've got obedient in verses 1 and 2 compared to disobedient in verse 3. Ready to do whatever is good compared to enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Slandering no one to living in malice and envy, being peaceable, considerate and gentle to being hated and hating one another. They're polar opposites, aren't they? And Paul is asking that verse three people, sinners, are to live like verse one and two people, peaceable people. And at this point, Titus could easily turn to Paul and say, well, hang on a minute, Paul. Do you see what you're asking here? You're asking that those who have been enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, you're asking for them to do whatever is good. Well, Paul, they're enslaved. They can't do that. You don't understand what you're asking. And I guess Paul's response is, well, no, they can't live like that. But this is who the message of grace is for. It is for sinners. And grace changes everything. You know, often people, whether on the bookstall or in the invitation team, I'm sure you'd know this, and if you talk to other people, uh, talk to people about the gospel, you'll know this. Often people take offense at the message of the Bible. Why? Because it calls them a sinner. But actually, understanding that you are a sinner is Not the best place to be, but it's a good place to be because it means that you qualify for God's grace. God's grace is for sinners. What did Jesus say? He said that he had not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not saying that there are some good enough not to need Jesus. We all need Christ because we are all sinful. But he is saying that those who come to him in faith and repentance will be those who recognize that they are sinners. Now, there'll only be one good person in heaven, and that will be Jesus. The rest will be forgiven sinners. So grace is is for sinners, but grace is also, verse 4, a person. Verse 4 talks about the kindness and love of God our Saviour, that has appeared. And uh, if you just flick back to chapter 2, a very similar wording in chapter 2 when it says, uh, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace appears. Uh, What is it that has appeared? Well, it is Jesus. Jesus, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, grace and the person of the Lord Jesus are synonymous, aren't they? Where do we see God's grace? We see it in Jesus. How do we receive God's grace? We receive it through faith in Jesus. How do we demonstrate God's grace? By becoming like Jesus. All of the examples of God's grace in the Old Testament all point to Jesus. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Any problem that is left unresolved in the Old Testament is fixed by Jesus. There is no one else by whom we can be saved. It can only be Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is only Jesus. So I ask you right at the start, have you come to Jesus for him to deal with your sin? There is no other way. And did you notice also how this grace is described in verse 4? The kindness and love of God. Grace is God's kindness. It's God's love. And put that together with verse 3, and we have God's kindness and love towards those who are sinners, towards the undeserving and the unlovely. See, that is what grace is. Andy's mentioned it already. It is the unmerited favor of God. That is grace. It's unmerited favor towards those who are completely undeserving, towards Us, sinners. So that's what grace is. But what does it have to offer? Three things from this passage. What does grace offer? Firstly, grace alone offers salvation. Verses 5 and 6. First of all, grace saves. What does God in his loving kindness do? He saved us. Again, it is nothing to do with our righteous efforts, is it? It says, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done. It's nothing to do with us, as if we could please God. He doesn't save the good. He, save, he is saving those described in verse 3. So what has God done to save us? Two ways uh, here in this passage. First, first of all, uh, God offers forgiveness. It says, we are saved not because of righteous things we have done, but by... Because of his mercy. The Emperor Napoleon had a rule in his army that any soldier who was absent without leave was to be shot if captured. Uh, No exceptions. Everyone knew the rule and everyone saw the consequences. Absent without leave, if you're captured, you're shot. However, one day, the soldier absent happened to be the 17-year-old son of Napoleon's cook. He was captured. And when he was, his mother came to Napoleon, begging on her knees and saying, "'Please, have mercy on my son.'" To this, Napoleon replied, "'Woman, your son doesn't deserve mercy.'" Yes, of course, she said, you're right. He doesn't deserve mercy. If he did, it would no longer be mercy. And Napoleon spared the son. You see, grace is receiving the good we do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving the punishment that we do deserve. Mercy is being forgiven, being pardoned, and escaping the punishment of God. See, grace is offering forgiveness from the God of heaven. Uh, and when we forgive, it's conditional, isn't it? But great, God's forgiveness is far better than anything that we can offer. It is not the, oh, I'll let you off this time, but if you do it again, then I won't be so nice. It's not that kind of forgiveness. It isn't conditional. It's free. It covers everything. It covers past sin. It covers present sin. It covers Sins we haven't even committed yet. It covers it all. I dare say if um, that 17-year-old boy had deserted again, then Napoleon wouldn't have been so forgiving, would he? But wonderfully, our God is not like that. He forgives all, however many times we mess up. And it's not a forgiveness that still remembers the sin that has been forgiven. Um, Sin need no longer loom over us bringing guilt with it. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God doesn't forget, but he does choose not to remember. He chooses not to remember our sin if we repent of them. And in other places it talks of God moving them out of sight, Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Or Isaiah 38, 17, Hezekiah says, you have put all my sins behind your back. They're out of sight. Once sin has been dealt with, God sees it no more. God's forgiveness is full and final. In fact, it would go against his just character to bring it up again, wouldn't it? Because for the repentant sinner, their sin has been dealt by Jesus, dealt with by Jesus as he paid for it on the cross. All of our sin, if we are trusting on, in him, has been laid on Christ. There is none left for us to have to carry, all because of his mercy. Grace offers forgiveness, but it also makes us new. Forgiveness kind of deals with the out, outward effects of sin. It forgives our thoughts and our actions. But there'd be a problem if God left it there. We'd still have our sinful natures. So God makes us new. Paul says that, we are, that he not only saved us by his mercy, but through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Verse, end of verse 5. God cleanses us inside and out and gives us... A new heart, a heart that can follow God, a heart that can obey. Another couple of passages, uh, one from Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27, you may know it. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That was God's promise in the Old Testament and it came true when Christ came. And then 2 Corinthians 5:17. Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. We need this new heart to be able to truly follow God, to follow God's good way. And grace offers it. Before we move on, did you notice the triune nature of God's acting, of, acting to save here? Uh, verse 6, you know, God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. All three members of the Trinity are present in our salvation. Isn't that wonderful? Grace alone saves us from sin. There is no other way that sin can be dealt with. It is only through grace. The thing is, so many people, uh, including us, often leave grace there. You know, it's done its job. It's saved us. Now let's move on and get on with this Christian living. But Paul shouts from the the rooftops, no. Verse 7. So that, this is the reason, Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is the first time the word grace is actually used, has actually come up in our passage. Um, and Paul's emphasis here is looking forward to the eternity that this grace secures. So the second thing that grace does, grace alone secures eternity. Grace alone secures eternity. We've had grace alone saves Now grace alone secures eternity. And to do this, Paul looks at two big doctrines to show the security of our eternity, and they are justification and adoption. So let's look at each in turn. Firstly, justification. Um, Justification is a legal term um, that means to proclaim someone right or righteous or innocent. Um, We might use it today to say that someone has been justified in their actions to wear a coat uh, when they're out and about on a walk and it starts to rain. Uh, What are we saying? We're saying, well, actually, they've been proven right by wearing a coat because it's raining. They've been proven right. The rain has justified their decision to put on their coat. But God here is proclaiming those who trust him as righteousness. He's saying, actually, those who trust me you are righteous. He is saying that we are good. But we know that that's not the case. Has God got the judgment wrong? Well, God sees everything, doesn't he? No, he, he's not made a mistake. Instead, it is a gift of grace. God knows that we are unrighteous, but he has the authority to say that we are. God is the jury as well as the judge, in the courtroom. And he's the only jury that, is, is not, that, is, that there has ever been that is not biased. He's got no bias at all. And he's the only judge who sentences perfectly justly. And he says that believers are righteous. Not because of any righteousness in us. There is none. But because of grace, because of the Lord Jesus. You see... As Jesus died on the cross, not only did our sin get laid on him, but also his righteousness got credited to our account. God isn't looking at our righteousness when he justifies us. He's looking at his son. When God looks at me, he doesn't see wretched Simeon Howlett anymore. Instead, he looks at me and sees the beauty of of his son, So justification does away with our sin and gives us a righteousness that we could never achieve. And in terms of eternity, that means we need no longer fear the punishment that we rightly deserve from God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God justifies, but he also... Adopts. He adopts us into his family. For those who are trusting solely in the Lord Jesus for salvation, we have been brought into the family of God. We are united to Christ and made heirs with him. That word came up, didn't it? Um, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We get all the privil- privileges that are rightfully Christ's, including the privilege of sonship. We can call God our Father, and that brings with it many blessings, both now and into the future. It means we can have close fellowship with God, and so much more. But Paul's particular focus here is the blessings in eternity. We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You know, heirs live in the... Uh, expectation of a particular blessing from their parents, don't they? Um, And this is no different. We are made heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And through that, we can live in the certain hope of one day enjoying the full riches of God. In particular, the riches we are to enjoy in eternity. Because adoption doesn't just mean that we are spared from hell. But it means that we get to enjoy the glories of heaven. Heaven is sure. It's not some vague hope. It's sure because we are made children of God. And that is the inheritance that we can look forward to. Eternity and glory. And in particular, in God's presence. The story goes, and I think it's a true story, of an art collector... Um, He had all sorts of paintings, from Van Gogh to Rembrandt. Uh, He had a bit of everything. Um, He also had one son whom he loved very, very much. Uh, But when the First World War broke out, his son had to go to fight. Uh, Unfortunately, he died. Um, But the father was sent a painting of the son uh, by one of his um, fellow soldiers. It wasn't a brilliant painting. It was very average. Um, But the father loved it. And it took pride of place in his house. Many years later, the um, father died. And having no children or grandchildren um, to leave his collection to, it all went to auction. Um, and when the auction happened, the room was full of avid art collectors, all desperate to get their hands on a priceless painting. And the auctioneer comes in and starts the auction and starts. says, Lot one, the sun. will anyone give me £100 for it? Silence, a painting of the sun. No one moved. And, and the price came down and down and down. This went on for quite some time, and people were beginning to get a little bit agitated, thinking, well, where's, where's the good stuff? We didn't come for this painting. But the auctioneer persisted. Eventually, the gardener came in, and he was the only one in the room who knew the family. And he bid £5 pounds for the painting of the sun, and he won it. No one else bid. And at that point, the auctioneer closes the auction. And the collectors, are, they're angry at this point. And they say, well, what about all the good stuff? What about the Rembrandts? And the auctioneer turns and says, these are the instructions I was given. Whoever has the sun has it all. Whoever has the sun has it all. And, and that is in many ways what adoption to God's family is like. We, we have Jesus, and through that, we have everything. We gain the Son, and we gain everything with it. Grace secures eternity. And then, third thing that grace offers. Grace alone offers sanctification, Grace alone offers sanctification, verse 8. And Paul starts verse 8 with uh, these words. This is a trustworthy saying. He says that a few times in um, Timothy and Titus. And in other words, Titus, pay attention. You need to pay particular attention to this. And then he goes on to tell Titus to stress these things. In other words, make a big deal of these things. Well, what must Titus pay particular attention to and what must he make a big deal of? Well, it's the marvelous grace that we've been talking about, isn't it? The grace that saves and secures eternity. Uh, and the reformers understood that, didn't they? They preached grace. Do we understand that? Should, are we making a big deal of grace? Do we talk of grace enough? Not just from the pulpit, but in our conversations, has grace so captivated us that it spills out into our conversations? It's a challenge, isn't it? So what will become of Titus and his congregation if he makes a big deal of grace? What will be the outcome if grace is the theme of our services and conversations? Will it be that we will become libertarian and and? Be of the mindset that we can do as we like, because grace covers sin. Well, that's not what Paul says. What does Paul say the outcome will be? The exact opposite. Verse 8, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You see, grace motivates the righteous, godly life. And this is why this passage is in the middle of a call to be peaceable and not divisive. Because the only way that those who are enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, the only way that they can be free to devote themselves to to doing what is good is through grace. You know, when we consider the grace of God in salvation, it should stir up a heart of love for him, for Christ. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Grace brings love, which in in turn brings obedience. It isn't out of duty that we seek to live godly lives, but out of love. Grace motivates the godly life, but it also teaches us how to live a godly life. Flip back to chapter 2. Uh, and we've already read verse 11, but verse 11 and 12 says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace isn't just concerned with the past and the future. It is worried about the here and now too. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It gives us the strength, not from ourselves, to resist and flee temptation. It allows us to turn from sin. Andy read from 2 Peter earlier, and I didn't know he was going to read this, but verse 3, "'His divine power has given us everything we need "'for a godly life through our knowledge "'of him who called us by his own glory and goodness.'" His divine power enables us to live a godly life. Grace motivates, but it also enables a godly life. It it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, but it also teaches us to say yes to godliness. The spirit that dwells within us as Christians changes our desires to those of God. We will desire more and more the things of God, We will seek holiness more and more. Grace alone gives these desires. Grace alone changes us to be more Christ-like. You know, sometimes as a Christian, it can be discouraging, um, as often we can't see much change day to day. In fact, often it seems that we are more aware of sin than we ever were before. But I think it's significant that At the start of the passage, Paul reminds us, uh, reminds the Christian of what we too were. We were sinful. Paul is saying, Christian, remember what you were, and look how much God has already changed you. Trust him in the future to keep sanctifying you. It can be discouraging when we don't see much change, but God is sanctifying us if we are believers. And that is through grace. Grace alone sanctifies. You see, you can't leave grace at salvation, however glorious that is, and it is wonderful. That would be a bit like watching episode one of some great trilogy. You might be gripped by it, but you don't get to fully enjoy the extent of the story, do you? If you just leave grace at salvation, you will glory in it, I'm sure. But you are missing out on so much. It also secures eternity and sanctifies us now. A couple of points of application as I, as I close. Firstly, Christian, if you're ever lacking assurance of salvation, then you need to come back to grace. Maybe it's because you don't seem to be getting any better, as I've just said. Come back to grace. Grace. Maybe it's because that you feel you're so wretched. Come back to grace. Always have grace in view. Isn't it wonderful that we can meet around the Lord's Supper and we do that regularly? What a wonderful grace that is from God to help us remind ourselves of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're struggling in your battle against a particular sin. Know that grace sanctifies. Know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. Come back to grace. And as I close, can I speak particularly to those who have never repented of their sin and put their trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation? Do you see what's being offered here freely at the cross of Christ Christ endured the cross to secure all of this for those who would trust him. Will you come humbly confessing your sin and plead the mercy of God, knowing that he loves to pour out his grace on those who call? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great grace towards us we thank you for the Lord Jesus who lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we all deserve to save us from sin to secure our eternity and to begin sanctifying us father we thank you that you offer those things freely because of your great love for us father we pray that we would always have that in view Uh, We would always uh, dwell on grace day by day. We thank you for the Lord's Supper where we can particularly think of your great grace towards us. And we pray that we would, as we go into this week, we would dwell on grace every morning, every evening, every waking hour as we live our lives. And remember that it is not just for salvation, but it is for life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen.